Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, or your electronic devices, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Facing death with hope is what we want to look at today. Facing death with hope. As I heard uh, a presentation by Options for Women Tuesday night, talking about the sexual revolution that kids are living through along without the invasion of technology. As the pre presenter gave this message, telling about how young people through technology are more in touch with the world than at any time in our history. I mean, they know everything just by the use of a phone. Google it. What's going on in Syria? Beirut, South America. I mean, they, they bring the world to their fingertips through technology. Of course, a world of evil is also there at the touch of the right key. But they were sharing how that young people today are the most protected generation ever. And by that, they meant uh, child protection uh, how we do a, a lot. How many of you uh, ever got a bike when you grew up? When I got a bike, that meant anything within 10 miles was mine. Anybody here? Hey, I, I, I go from San Pablo, go into Richmond, see whatever I wanted, go to the UA, go to the Fox, go to Arts Records store on 6 and McDonald. Come on. If I had a bike, 
I had wheels. Today, most kids don't get to ride their, bli- b- their bike over a block from home. Our kids was that way. They would beg sometimes, especially our Elizabeth, I want to go down to the store. Well, that was three blocks. No, no. Who, who knows who's liable to jump you by that time? When I was 13, I was hitchhiking on Saturday mornings at 5.30 to the Orinda Country Club where I would caddy. Now, I weighed 110 pounds, and I guarantee you those clubs weighed 80. <laughs> but I leave 5.30. Do you think my mother was there? Let me pray over you. It, she didn't even say, I hope you come back. <laughs> we thought nothing of it. You go, okay, get through caddying about, yeah, maybe 4 o'clock, 3.30, and anybody remember the snake road on the dam road when it was like this? Started hitchhiking. 13. Hitchhiked to Vallejo anytime I wanted to. You hitchhike, rode your bike. Never thought about fear. My sister Ruth and I would walk from where Jack Newell's is, because uh, the projects were that way. We walked to the Uptown Theater, go through the tile factory there on Carlson. Nobody ever going to mess with us. I was in the third grade. She was in the fifth. Would you do that? You would with police escort. <laughs> See, we, we thought nothing about perceived dangers. Uh, but they say kids today are living with more anxiety, more fear, and more suicides than any other civilized nation. It's the most in our our history. At the most prosperous time in America, kids are scared to death. And then you put uh, out today, you might die tonight. Had you thought about it? Oh, you're going to make a wreck out of me. I can't afford to think about things like that. You remember in Luke 12, the man that had time for barns, and the Lord said, tonight I require your soul of you. And the guy went zonkers. He said, uh, I'm not prepared to meet God. He said, well, you had time to build barns. You're going to meet your maker tonight. Tonight. Now, let me ask you, this is personal, but if tonight you step across the realm of death, what's on the other side? Where will you go? What will be your condition once you cross that? Now, I want to tell you, I went to enough family funerals last year. If you're here very long, how many of you buried your parents? How many of you burying your siblings? And God forbid if you've had to bury a child. You can't escape death. It's appointed to us. The thing we want to consider is here Paul says in chapter 4, I am dying every day. I've had a sentence on me to be killed from the day I got saved. Acts 9, you read the chapter. In that chapter, the Jews plot to kill him, and he's just come to Christ. Paul always expected martyrdom, and he wasn't disappointed. He was believed to be 54 years of age and beheaded by the king he said we ought to submit to. 
But he writes here in chapter 5 of the biblical view of death and dying and what he felt about that. And uh, I thought three things I want to look at. Hope is longing for a new body. That's part of our hope, our new resurrected body. Then he goes on, hope makes you aware of how you use your body now. Christians living with hope are using their body in a certain way. And finally, hope knows I will be examined at the end of the race by the Lord Jesus himself. And he doesn't give you a passing grade because you flunked. He doesn't have to automatically pass you to the next grade like we do. We just passed the kid because he's too big to be in the third grade. It's not that way with Jesus. He's going to truly examine your life, and he's going to reward or let you suffer loss accordingly. So, let us consider all the views. I want to give you 10 just brief views that of what your religious group would tell you will happen the moment you die. What do they say? Let me give you some of these views. First of all, the Greeks of Paul's day, they had a philosophy. Listen to this. The despair of the Roman world is brought to us by the gloomy inscriptions on their monuments. The contrast of the monuments of the heathen above ground on the Appian Way with their dreary wail of despair to the exultant notes of the ill-written, ill-spelled inscriptions of the catacombs where the Christians who were not allowed to be buried above ground and they went into subterranean caves in the uh, uh, heart of uh, Rome. And if you go in there, you see a sleeping Jesus, uh, shepherded by Jesus. You'd see him like on sailboats sailing to the other world. You go upstairs, and this is what the philosopher said. Ascalus, of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Theocritus said, hopes are among the living. The dead are without hope. Lacritus said, no one awakes and arises who has once been overtaken by the chilling end of death. Catalyst said, suns may set and rise again, but we when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. No hope in Greek philosophy. They said, you died, you ceased to exist. The most that may last would be the soul, but they did not even believe in the immortality of the soul. They said, it's over, you cease at death. Sadducees. They said there is no resurrection. And many Jews today say there's nothing after death. It's over. Liberal theology uh, in the United States moved to the place. They gave up the resurrection of the body, and they moved to something, and you'll see it in poetry, and you'll hear They talk about the immortality of the soul. In other words, the immaterial of you never dies. 
You'll be alive somewhere, somehow, but you'll never see your body again. There is no physical resurrection. Hinduism came out of India, 800, 1000 B.C. And uh, they taught the transmigration of the soul, that once you die, you begin to wander through space and time until finally you come back in another body. And out of their theology was the teaching of karma, which is really a cause and effect theology that says, you better be a good person while you're alive because it's going to determine how you come back. Let's say if you mean to mom and dad, you're coming back like a monkey, coming back like a donkey, coming back as a rat. You don't know how you're going to come back. Because you see, you were something before you showed up. Because you never die. Souls are transmigrating. Transmigrating. Karma, karma, you better watch out. Are you going to be better off in the next life and the next body or worse? What will you come back as? Hindus and Buddhists buy this concept of death. Jehovah's Witnesses. They say you're annihilated. There is no hell. And uh, the soul is not immortal. There are groups, even among evangelicals, that teach when you die, you just sleep. Your soul, spirit sleeps so that you are unconscious in the presence of Jesus until he resurrects you. And you figure there's some saints that have been dead for 2,000 years. And they're not attending church. They're in the grave. There's others in the pew. But just think, I've been dead for 2,000 years, and I've been unconscious of anything to the place I've gone to. It's called soul sleep. What has happened they see these verses where it says, asleep in Jesus. They took that to the soul, and it's talking about the body sleeps. Romans 4, or rather Revelation 14, they rest from all their labors. They don't become unconscious. When Jesus pictured the rich man in hell and Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, they were conscious they remembered their five brothers. They knew the difference between cool water and burning flames. Plenty conscious. Conscious all. Revelation 6, when the martyrs are praying at the altar, they say, oh, God, how long will it be before you avenge our uh, people that killed us? How long will it take you before you judge them? This is a prayer meeting going on in heaven in Revelation 6. These are glorified saints. They said, we, I, we want you to judge those men that are killing us. They were conscious. And Paul said, I want to be absent from the body and present with the Lord so that I may sleep. No, I, I'll, I'll know my surroundings. I never 
I think when my brother was uh, on this ventilator and everything and laid there for 10 days and we all kept hoping he'll come back, he'll come back, doctors eventually thought he might have been brain dead the moment he had the blood clot and the surgery. They think, well, maybe he just was brain dead. We saw our sister that way, had an aneurysm, just, just uh, died in her chair. Where did they go? Where did they go? Reincarnation? Soul sleep? Where, where did they go? No resurrection in store because that won't happen. Let's keep going. Annihilation, very common. Even men like John Stott say that the wicked dead are annihilated, and this is their theology. How can you pay for eternity for a mortal sin? If you did one sin, surely the, the payment cannot be eternal. Jonathan Edwards' answer is, sin against an eternal being brings an eternal consequence. Limbo. What is limbo? You're a Roman Catholic. And... Uh, You didn't get, get around to baptizing your child. Or maybe you just got saved and you lost a baby in a miscarriage or a child died some way. Roman Catholic theology says this. At first they made limbo a hell, but there's such an outrage by parents that they came up with limbo. And limbo is a place that is said to be on the edge of hell. Not quite a burning hell, but it is a place of torment. And unbaptized babies go there. That's why a good Roman Catholic family will get that baby baptized like now. Because they believe, according to Augustine in the 4th century, that original sin that you're born with is atoned for once you're baptized. So you cannot be lost for being a sinner, but if you're unbaptized, you must pay for your sins. And then Rome taught this. Baptism saves you up to that time. You've got to hear this. Lorraine Botner, Roman Catholicism, read their sources. I'm not making this up. If you want the sources, you can see me after the service. I'll give you a bibliography. that the baptism fount covered you for being born in Adam, original sin. But after your baptism in time, you can commit one of two kinds of sin, venial, mortal. Venial, the word means forgivable. You can commit a forgivable sin. But if you commit a mortal sin, adultery, murder, idolatry, there is no forgiveness for these. You are going to hell, and we can't get them eradicated. So you better get your baby baptized, or else they'll go to a place of torment. Then purgatory, where in the world did that come from? 
Purgatory comes from the word to purge. And Roman Catholic theology says, takes the passage like 1 Corinthians 5, that the sinning brother, that God shall judge him and he shall be saved as by fire. 1 Corinthians 5. They say that when you die, even if you're in good standing as a Roman Catholic, and you only have venial sins on your soul. You haven't done anything outrageous. Murder and these grosser sins. But you're in good standing. You've been attending the church. You got the last sacraments. You went through all the steps. You've been baptized. That you must go to a burning hell until, because no one dies perfect. So then you must go to a hell to purge and burn out and pay for the sins you have committed. Because the cross does not pay for that. Only the church can. And so, purgatory is even for a good Roman Catholic in good standing, gone to confession, given their money, uh, had last rites, had unction, was married in the church, we know you're nice, but you're not fit for heaven yet, so you must go to purgatory. Next question, how long? How long? Nobody knows, but the priest that tells you he could put 100 years on it, 1,000 years, 500 years. Think of that Roman Catholic that loves that church with all their heart, and when it's time to die and the priest comes and prays over them at the hospital bed and say, good night, my brother. See you in purgatory. <laughs> Not in heaven. You cannot go direct to heaven. Now, thank you if you face death that way. And then in 1517, Luther, what made him nail the 95 Theses is people in Luther's congregation were paying money to bring relief to their family members because it used to be you could only pay for the living to get time off in purgatory. But with Tetzel, who came from Rome to Germany, he said, you can pay off time for your mother and your father. You can knock off 100 years if you'll give an offering to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. Luther went berserk. How dare you think you could change the time a person stays in a burning, purging fire? Who came up with this stuff? Where did this come from? Why, I want to evangelize every Roman Catholic and give them hope. You don't face limbo. You don't face purgatory. If you take Christ, your next step is heaven. Sometimes we try to be so nice to every view we differ with that it sounds pitiful. Call it what it is. It's abominable. Abominable. The evangelical Bible view is when you die, you go to heaven or hell. Heaven or hell, and there's no stops on the way on the elevator. 
well, I like to step off of purgatory a little bit. Purge. No, no, you go to heaven or hell. Immediately, there's no second chance. There's no altar calls in eternity afterwards. There's no second chances. If you're here without Christ, you've only got one chance. As far as you're concerned, this may be the last. Because death is imminent to every one of us. We're all dying. That's why when you get old enough, you don't use mirrors anymore. You're dying, honey. You're dying. Carolyn says, you got my graduation picture in your office. I hate you having that. That, that shows you how I used to. Honey, I want to remember. <laughs> now, what's Paul facing? What, what's his hope when he's going to die? Look what he says. I have a building in the heavens once I move out of this earthly tent, the storms of life have rent it, tore it, but I'm moving into permanent headquarters, an eternal house in heaven, not in purgatory, not in the in-between world, and built not by human hands. Meanwhile, we are groaning, and some of you are better at it than others. McGee said his wife used to say to him, said, you groan all the time. He said, it's biblical. <laughs> we groan in this body. We, we get tired. We get aches, pains. But besides the groaning, we're longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. He views the new body as clothing. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Now, I understand this, that the Bible says little about death to resurrection body. It's called the intermediate state. And he says, my longing is not to be in a disembodied state. I always want a body. I want to, if I die, I want the second coming. I want a new body right now. But he said, but in case I'm naked, I not, not, don't have my body, he said, uh, I'll wait for while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And in the midst of this, God gave us the Holy Spirit to guarantee you that even though your salvation is not complete, God will make the third installment by redeeming your body and manifesting that you're a son. He will show us off as adopted children of his. We were adopted the moment we were born again, but he's going to show off our adoption papers to all eternity. He says, when we get our redeemed body, he's going to say, that's a legitimate son. That's a legitimate child of mine. That's our hope in dying. When I die, I long to get a resurrected body, but if I have to wait 100 years in heaven, I'll be with Christ, which is far better than remaining in this tent. And that's what Paul said in Philippians. I'd rather depart and be Christ, which is far better. What a hope. Go ahead and kill me. That's it, Paul. Don't threaten me with death. I'm not afraid. It's been defamed for me. I've trusted in him who conquered death and the grave. 
I've made preparations. I'm going all the way in a moment. In a moment. I'll tell you, I never knew I'd ever have to do so many funerals because I was terrified of them as a kid. But I'll tell you right now, and I've buried enough loved ones, and I've done enough funerals. I've done more funerals than anybody in this building. I want to tell you the Christian gospel makes you walk in that cemetery. You, I will see you. My mother, I will see you. Daddy, I will see you. My sister, I will see. My brothers, I will. I'm telling you, you ought to be happy about this if nothing else. I'd be a Christian just for this way of dying. I'd be a Christian just that I've got my funeral. I don't need the Neptune Society. I got the Jesus Society. And I've already made my arrangements. Oh, you can get happy over this if you took it literal. Are you depressed at the thought of dying? I'm not either. I'm a little nervous about how I'm going to go out. But, but I'm not nervous about the journey. But I'm not rushing it either. So don't come up and say, you know, we pray the Lord take you. No, no, please don't do that. Now, now look at his hope. He goes on, this hope makes me use my body at present in a certain way. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. See, I, I'm in this body, but I'm not right in the new home he made. Uh, Christ is with me, but I won't be at home in the same way as when I die. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Let me ask you, how are you doing in the walk of faith? I walk by faith. <laughs> There's some days I walk by sight. I could tell you every problem I could tell you every bill. Every, I could tell you that uh, I'm working on taxes tomorrow. I'm going to tell you I'll be walking by sight tomorrow. Yeah. I wish I could see those figures and say, no, they're not there. They mean this. By faith, I claim it. And then when you hear I've gone to jail, you know you, you're walking by sight now. <laughs> you're walking by sight. But here Paul said in chapter 4, we don't let our momentary light afflictions bother us, for we're looking unto eternal weight of glory. We've got to look at what's coming. Yeah, I might be in a Philippian jail right now. They may have a warrant for my arrest. I know I'm headed for martyrdom, but I don't look at what I can see only. I'm looking into another world. Have any of you ever lived that way? Or is it all this world? I think of when Elias' servant went out in Dothan, and he went out, and he, and he went back to Elias, and Elias said, what did you see? He said, the armies of the enemy are surrounding us. They're in the hills. They're everywhere. We're outnumbered. And Elias said, get up here, boy. Praise for him. 
God, help this boy to see. He stepped out. Wait, I never saw that. The hills lined with the armies of God. Some of you, all you see are the armies of the enemy. You've not been, had your eyes anointed so you can see God. You know what? For every fallen demon, there's two good angels. I got two fighting for me, for everyone opposing me. I think of Peter. Isn't it amazing? All it was, just focus. He looks to Jesus. He's walking on water. I mean, this is, this is wonderful. <laughs> Going, what happened? He quit looking to Jesus. He started looking at the waves. How are we to walk? How are we to walk? By faith. That means there's hidden resources that can only be grasped by faith. You remember Romans 4, that God could count Abraham already the father of nations because he could see things as they are before they exist. He could see multitudes in his loins, and the old man, and with an old wife, Sarah, says, man, all I see is my wife's barren, and I'm getting to be old. God said, you've seen nothing yet. Nations and kings are going to come out of you, Abraham. You're staring at me. I'm staring right back. <laughs> and he said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He said in verse 9, I've made it my ambition to live pleasing to the Lord with the body I've got. The body I've got was made to serve God with. And I'm going to serve God with everything I've got in this body. And if it's martyrdom, if it's stoning, if it's shipwrecks, that doesn't matter. Uh, my body is to serve the Lord. Then he said, I know this. I live with this by faith that I shall someday be examined by the Lord himself, and he is going to praise everything I've done in my body. And look at that. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is believers. We must all, believers. This is not to deal with your sins. That was dealt with at the cross. This is to appraise the activities you carried out in a saved body. All that you've done from the time you profess faith until now, he's going to judge its quality, its merit. And then each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. There's some things that we may have a reward coming. God's going to look on it, and he's going to make a judgment. Is it good or bad? Was it good or bad? Uh, had a young lady last week said, you said in the sermon that Christians sin. I've been taught they don't. What should I tell her? I guess I could have done like many of you. Oh, I sin every day just to stay in shape. No, I don't have to sin, but most of us do. And it's not you go out and rob a bank. Just tell me, did you love anybody? Start with your wife. 
See, just the sins of omission, you're guilty. There's all kinds of things I should have done that I didn't do. But he said he's going to praise our body. Look back with me. I want you to see two verses. Romans. I'm listening for paper. Romans. Romans 14. Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Is that true? He said it was. Look at 1 Corinthians. This is a powerful verse. Chapter 4, verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The why you do something is more important than what you do. If I offer my body to be burned as a martyr and my motive wasn't right, it profits nothing. Why do you do what you do? Why do you put an offering? Why don't you give in an offering? We missed it by $75,000 last month. Everybody's still paying Santa. Uh, I hope we do better this month. Why do you give? Why don't you give? Why do you serve? Why don't you serve? Why are you so cranky? Why are you so sweet? Why? The why. Just read the life of Wilberforce that said no matter the opposition, he was one of the most positive, upbeat men, and it took him 25 years in Parliament to end slavery in the British Empire. Defeated time and time again. Comes down with a spinal disease. His eyes are going. His wife was a constant depressive person, but he just kept joy kept serving with gladness. I don't know what God's going to see in the way you've lived, but I know there's at least five things that he says, I will see that it gets rewarded. Number one, those who willingly die for me, I'll give them a crown of life. Revelations 2.10, James 1.12. If you willingly sacrifice your life for the cause of Christ, he says, I'll give you the crown of life that your life will never be touched again. I am going to reward you. Two, the crown of glory. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And he said, that is for men who take care of God's people. And there's not one man in 5,000 willing to do that. God's people are messy. God's people are nearsighted. They're like sheep. They have wavered. They're stubborn. Uh, 
they, you know, Chuck and I was praying here the other day, and he said, Lord, I know we have many problems at Valley. And when he got through, I said, you know what? There's a lot of problems in a hospital. Every bed's got a problem. When you're working with people, there's always lots of problems. I can't hear you out there. You're a big problem or a big blessing. You're either not well, you're on the negative side, negative, 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 or you're well, and you're helping, help running. You know what gets you in the hospital? It's all right if the patient's sick, What's terrible is when the nurses are fighting with each other. You don't want those that ought to be helping fighting with each other. Because this patient over here is dying of cancer. They don't need to know about your petty little skirmishes. When will you focus on getting that person well instead of getting your way with this nurse? That's the way it is in the household of faith. Are we getting along with one another so we can minister to the sick? He said, I'll give a crown of righteousness to everybody that longs for my coming. 2 Timothy 4.8. That's interesting. There will be some believers that are not longing for his coming. But he'll come anyway. In Matthew 24, he said, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. The last days are prophesied to be a giant glacier of which you'll have to fight to keep any spiritual temperature because we're in a cold age. Cold, cold, cold. It's cold in the church. It's cold in the culture. It's cold when families are breaking up over nothing, when children are being abandoned. You live in a cold, frigid temperature zone in this present world. I want to ask you, can you keep the fire burning till he comes? Crown of rejoicing for those who witness 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Paul said, you are my joy and crown. I led you to the Lord, and you will be my joy and crown. Let me ask you, will you have anyone there that you influence to come to Christ? you have anyone that you've influenced to come for Christ? Finally, he said in 1 Corinthians that uh, normal athletes, they run to win a corruptible crown, but you are running, keeping yourself under control to win an incorruptible crown. And what he's saying there, it's an athletic description. If you keep yourself in shape to run this race, God said, I'll reward you bringing your body. He said, I beat my body in subjection. I make it get up. I make it study. I make it evangelize. I come to church when I'm tired. I make my body my slave. My body doesn't run me, but my aim to please Christ, I make my body its slave. Instead of being out of shape spiritually and I don't know how to serve, I don't know how to race. That's your problem. You're not in shape for the race. You've got to discipline yourself to live a godly life. Doing just laying around, sitting around. First Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself to be godly. 
And that's what Paul says. I discipline my body. I make it my slave because I'm captured by a bigger goal than comfort and pleasure. I'm living for the cross. I'm living for the cross. I want to ask you, should you die within the next 24 hours, where will you go? And it won't matter if you're a member of this church. It won't get you to heaven. No, 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 no. This, our church membership is worthless to get you to heaven. There's only one door to this city. His name is Jesus. I am the door to the sheepfold. Now, some of you, I'm afraid, you've got a little bit of a religious itch, but maybe you've never been born again. And someday we're going to do your funeral. I've got a brother-in-law that's dying. Got gangrene in his body, and hospice has come in. Morphine's being administered. He won't have long. Oh, I hope. I hope all is well. What if I have to do your funeral? What will I be able to say about you that's true? There's more lying goes on at funerals than you can imagine. Sometimes you walk away, who? I didn't know. Is that the same guy I knew? Because preachers are paid to lie at funerals. Do you know Christ? Are you going to limbo? You going to purgatory? Are you going to hell? Are you going to heaven? If you're going, why don't you bring some company along with you? Why don't you tell some other people, you can have hope when you're dying. You can have hope when you're dying. You don't need last rites. You don't need any water sprinkled on you. You need Jesus. And you're ready. You signed up. I got my ticket, and I'm just waiting to land. What a day it will be. I have to say one of the most convicting things I lived with as a kid was Howard Funerals because all my aunts would shout at funerals. They'd shout, get happy, and shout Methodist Pentecostals because they, they believed heaven was as close as dying. You know, they just swiftly went over, but don't ask me to be depressed at my mother's funeral because I know where she landed. I know where she landed. Our Father, you know the condition of every heart. Some, no doubt, with a congregation of this size, some may not be prepared to die. They have no hope in the face of death. Please, let them run to Christ. For he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And that it's not paying so much money to a priest to get me off time. It was all paid at Calvary. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I have got heaven as a reward of the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I've been signed, I've been sealed, and I'm ready to be delivered. And it will be a glorious day 
to skirt off from a hospital room or wherever the last breath. I wouldn't mind. By the way, Lord, I need to let you in on something. I wouldn't mind if you let me just skip dying and just come back. If you'd come, I, would, I, I won't even miss dying. I'll just be translated in a moment. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, boom, like that in your presence. What a hope, what an anticipation. All just because Jesus would die for us on the cross. If you're there and you want Christ, only you could tell him. Only you could invite him. If you don't want him, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? We bless your name, Lord. I am so glad as the song went, I'm going to make it somehow. When I started this Christian life, I didn't have that assurance. I was told all the time I could lose it. I could lose it. I could lose it. I'm so glad you delivered me from that that false teaching for my soul. I am going to make it because of him who began the work. You will get us through. Glory to your name. Shake hands with somebody and said, I'll see you in heaven. You're dismissed.